This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030. So, uh, business debts. So, a trend in in all kinds of industries these days uh, it's like being your own boss, whether yeah. you're a freelancer or a contractor or whatever. Yeah, the um, whole side hustle. You know, a lot of people are finding they need a couple different income streams, whether it's, you know, not Uber yet in BC, but it's coming. Uh, right. But, you know, Fedora or do, uh, Skip the Dishes. There's a bunch of, you know, little side hustles. A lot of people are becoming self-employed. Yes. And then you've obviously got, you know, the classic type of folks, you know, whether it's a contractor or a realtor or somebody where their natural state often is to be self-employed. Exactly. So business debts... Uh, the debt from being in business can Mm -hmm. still follow you. And that's what we're going to talk about in this segment. Yeah, I'm excited on this one, Elaine, because I found, you know, there's really nothing that sets out when you become self-employed. There's no manual the government gives you that says, hey, here's all the pitfalls, here's the potential things that can come up and bite you. And I see them in my day-to-day again and again, the same types of things. So today, what I wanted to do was to give somebody, you know, if you were about to start out in business, how should you structure things? And what are the big risks? What do you have to mitigate? What do you have to guard against? Um, Because being self-employed can be great, uh, but can also be a nightmare if you're not sure what you're doing. Excellent. So we're going to talk about it under this ba- uh, this backdrop of this study, which I thought was fascinating. So mm-hmm. it came from the Government of Canada, Key Small Business Stats, uh, 2019, January 2019. So listen to this. Between 2010 and 2015, on average, annually, about 95,000 small to medium-sized enterprises were mm-hmm. created. So you think... Wow. I mean, that's what I thought when I read that. I went, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. But 85,000 disappeared. Over the same period. Amazing, right? Yes, indeed. So business debt basics, that's what this segment's all about. What what are or what do you think are the main... sort of keys that potential business owners need to understand before becoming self-employed? Because you see them at a different mm-hmm. point in their in this process. So if I was starting out, what mm-hmm. are the things that I, I should know? You know, the first thing, Elaine, that I think, and let's spend a few minutes here, is just thinking about the structure of your business. Because, you know, being self-employed can mean a number of different things. And there's three main structures that you can have if you're being a self-employed person. Um, you know, the first one is the most simple, and this is being a sole proprietor. So, you know, essentially, this is the default. If you just started, you know, doing a side hustle or starting up business on your own, you never created a company, you never uh, went into partnership with anybody else. Well, by definition, you're a sole proprietor. Yes. And what that means is that there's no separation between you and the business. The assets and the debts of the business are also your personal assets or, and debts. Right. So that's very crystal clear. And most of the time, in many cases, a proprietorship is the right answer for a lot of people. It's not complicated. Uh, it's much more simple than having a separate entity. But proprietorship is your default. If you don't do anything different and you just start um, basically doing business not as an employee, by default, you're a proprietor. Okay. 
Other two types of structures are a little bit less common, uh, partnership. So if one or more persons are combining their resources in a business, they might, now they're not required to do this, but they might establish formal terms and become a partnership, which is relatively straightforward. You can find standard partnership agreements. But what's really important here too is, again, there's no separation between the business and yourself personally. Got it. And what's really important with a partnership and why I tend to, you know, advise against it if someone is starting out, um, you know, essentially you're buying the assets and liabilities of the other partners as well. So if the business fails, all the partners fail. If one partner fails, all the partners fail. So right. you're really basically taking on the liabilities of your partner as well. So you've got to be careful. Fair enough. Um, the third and probably the, the more common, so I see proprietors more often than not, partnerships very rarely, but the second most common that I do see is a corporation. Alrighty. And what this is, is you've set up an incorporated company that becomes a legally separate entity. So essentially, it's a separate legal person um, that can sue, can be sued, can have assets, can have liabilities. And most of the time, the reason people set up a corporation is because they want to create some separation uh, between themselves and the business, you know, from liability, from a debt point of view. So that means if, if the business goes down, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to go down. Theoretically, yes. And I okay. say theoretically yeah. because um, that's usually the idea is that you're separating, having an incorporated company, you're not taking on the liabilities personally. But as we're going to talk about, a lot of liabilities of the business, even if it's incorporated, become your personal liability if you're the director, the person running the business. So you lose a bit of protection there. And then also, you know, if you were thinking about you're starting up a business, you start this new incorporated company that's been there for a month, and you go to the bank and you try to get financing, what do you think the bank's going to say? This corporation's got no history. They're yeah. going to say, you know what? We want you to put your name on the dotted line as well. So then you as the proprietor, not the proprietor, sorry, the owner of the corporation, uh, you've taken on some liabilities there. So right. theoretically, it gives you some protection, but in practice, not always. Yeah, and it sounds like, yeah, it's not necessarily going to go that way, especially if you need funds from that, a bank. Yeah, exactly, yes. Okay, so common debts that come up even for, you know, a super simple business operation. Yeah, the most common ones that we tend to see um, are generally the more severe debts, so Canada Revenue Agency debt. So a couple really important ones here, and these are some that people have no idea about until they're already, you know, behind the eight ball sometimes. Uh, one is collecting and remitting GST. So as much as we don't like to pay GST on our purchases, imagine if you're a business owner that was supposed to be charging it on all of the purchases and you didn't do so, and the government comes to you for that money, Yeah, which I see happen again and again. So, <laughs> yes. And I'm sorry, but ignorance is not a defense uh, with it's the government. Not. I think we all know it, that. Especially with the CRA. They That's actually right. don't care no. <laughs> that you didn't know. And as we started off by saying, there's no handbook. There really isn't. It's, it falls to yourself to get some good advice, accountant, lawyer, trustee, uh, to make sure that you're set up correctly. But so the first one is collecting and remitting GST. So if you are in more than $30,000 of revenue in a year, you need to register with CRA, get a GST number, and file GST. He returns and make remittances to, to CRA. Remittances mean payments uh, yes. to CRA. Yeah, yeah. There's only a small number of professions where this won't apply. A very, very small number that I've seen. I won't even go through them to give people false hope. It's almost everybody. Uh, if you're earning over thirty thousand, you've got to register for GST. And that's the magic number. Yes, it's thirty thousand. Okay. Yeah, and again, if you fail to do so, CRA can still go back and say, "Well, you should have done so," um, and therefore we're assessing you based on the GST that should have been collected, even if you never charged it to your customers. Okay. And and now, if you're an incorporated business, that GST debt becomes your personal debt. 
So that's one of those types of things where you think the corporation might be separating you, but whether proprietorship, partnership, or corporation, you owe GST as the person behind the business. And that's sort of typical of CRA in a lot of cases that we've talked about where they sort of uh, defy what everybody else is impacted by, but no, not CRA. Mm -hmm. And the concept there is they're what's called an involuntary creditor. So the law says, hey, the bank's always had this discretion. They could loan money or not, and there's some risk associated to it. Um, But if you're with CRA, you know, essentially they never made the choice to allow you to go into business, to allow you to collect GST and not remit it to them. So that's why they get the special treatment in the law. You can agree or disagree, but the concept of them not agreeing to loan you money, but suddenly they've got a debt. That's why they get a little bit more power in the law. Got it. What about payroll? Yeah. So we talked about GST and even more severe than that um, is the idea of payroll source deductions. So whether you're a proprietor, a partnership or a corporation, if you've got employees, you're required to withhold payments from their from their wages and remit those to to, to the government. So things like CPP, income tax, um, employment insurance, um, those type of premiums have to be paid. Um, you know, in, even in addition to withholding from the employee, the employer also has to commit a portion of payments as well. So in total, those are called source deductions. And if you fail to remit those to the government, I would say nothing will shut your business down more quickly. The way the government views that is they're viewed as trust amounts, which means it's money you're supposed to hold in trust for the government, never use it in your business operations. So sometimes it can be a small number of months you might be able to go not remitting source deductions before the government would have a bailiff at the business's door saying, you know what, you've got to deal with this debt. It's our money that you're using in your operations. Yeah, and that's happened. I worked for a company that did that, said we were all contract players and so we don't need to do this. Mm -hmm. And then about eight, nine, ten months in, they said, oops, sorry, we made a huge error and this is remember when we told you to put money aside <laughs> yeah we need that money now oh, yeah. yeah it was really awesome well and that's you, you've hit on something there Elaine that if you're an employer and you think you've been smart by hiring everybody on contract you might be falling to that exact example Elaine oh, yeah. just outlined by saying you know CRA might come back and say well if this walks like a duck quacks like a duck these are really employees and we want you to make all these remittances that you've been telling them they have to make themselves and so. that's exactly how it worked out mm-hmm. because we had uh, we had to be at work at a certain time we had yeah. to do certain jobs, it was very clearly laid out, and that's where they got nailed. Yeah. And if you're not providing services to other folks, well, then clearly it's a captive employer-employee relationship. Sierra will look at the substance there. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the next one was a personal CPP, EI, and income tax. Did we cover that part of it? Uh, that's just to say, if you're not incorporated, if you're a proprietor yourself, uh, when you do your taxes every year, um, you've got to make sure that you've set money aside to cover your personal obligations for income taxes, for CPP and for EI. Okay. So not even just for your employees, uh, but for yourself as well. Those those have to get paid. Make sure you do that. Mm-hmm. So what are the mistakes that people are, or, yeah, what are the things that we shouldn't do or, or somebody shouldn't do when it comes to business debts? Is there some things that you can sort of Yeah, the biggest do? mistake that I find that people have is yeah, they yeah. Uh, that people make is they've got this, you know, great drive and great passion for their business and they just jump in. They don't sit mm-hmm. back, they don't plan, they don't sit down with an accountant, with a lawyer, they don't sit there and debate the various structures. You know, they incorporate because a friend or a colleague said they should do that or they stay as a proprietor because a, because a friend or a colleague told them they should do that. Uh, but they ignore the whole idea of planning planning and structuring correctly. There are some businesses which make a whole lot of sense to be a corporation. Um, There are others where 
all you're doing is paying extra money to accountants, extra money to lawyers every year. Yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. Yeah. And you're not actually getting any benefit from being structured at, as a corporation. Got it. So you want to sit down at the outset and make sure your structure is correct. So that real, real good planning has to happen. Mm-hmm. And I liked your next one because I bet this happens so often mm-hmm. that people put their own money in. Yeah. Because as you would, right? If you care about this thing, you're passionate about it, you want to start it, you can see a need, fulfill that need, put your own money in. And exactly. And, you know, mm-hmm. so often, you know, you think you're just one quarter away. You're a few months away. Things yeah. are going to change. You've got these rose-colored glasses because you know your abilities and you know there's a need here and you're going to be able to fill it and the business is going to catch up eventually. Sure. That's also so, being real super positive, yeah, too, about which, it, right? Which you need that to be an entrepreneur, for Absolutely. sure. Um, but you've got to decide at what point um, do you stop injecting personal funds. And I've seen folks in my office where it just breaks my heart because, you know, they went through all of their personal funds and then they started to involve other family members. You know, sometimes it's parents, grandparents, you know, some real estate wealth the family might have had. It just gets chiseled away um, over time being injected into a business that objectively, knowing nothing about the business, you'd be saying, well, if the business can't cash flow itself after the first year, two years, if you're consistently injecting personal funds into it, it's not a viable business. But that can be a very difficult, very emotional discussion to try to have. But just at the headline level, if you're injecting personal funds into a business on a regular basis, it's generally not a viable business. So that's so that's kind of the clue then, is not to do to be doing it on a regular basis. That's you're in right. trouble. So, and this is a chance for you to talk about you know how where and how self-employed contractors or business owners can get help with all of this stuff. I mean, you get to shine shine your light, <laughs> Well, right? yeah, and just in the last few minutes we have, um, these are some of the best meetings that I have, Elaine, because I'm able to set up the structure for folks, help them understand if you're incorporated, here's how you can transition to a different structure. Um, so I find a licensed insolvency trustee is a great place for people to start if they're in business, but they've got some CRA debts that's holding them back. Uh, also, an accountant or a lawyer can be a great resource. Go see Sands and Associates. They're easy to find. 1-800-661-3030. Find their locations. There's 16 offices and uh, find that office near you and make that appointment. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about the key differences between credit counseling programs and personal bankruptcy. It's super. It's going to be really interesting if you don't know the difference, or if you don't know the different mm-hmm. pieces of each. At least I always found this find this interesting topic. So both credit counseling programs and personal bankruptcy are dead options to consider, but there's some big big differences between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's start with credit counseling program um, and who provides. Who provides each of them? Yeah, let's start at the what. What are we talking about, yeah. right? So credit counseling programs, it's a means of consolidating your debt into a settlement program. And the credit counselor is someone that facilitates that process. So in simple terms, when you go in and see a credit counselor, they'll help you sit down and look at your entire situation and say, okay, here's all the people that you owe money to. Um, let's see, can we consolidate all those payments together? Maybe save you a little bit of money on the interest, but let's help you pay the debt back in full. Sounds great. Exactly. And while we do that, let's also give you some good budgetary support. Let's try to help you avoid getting in the situation again, identify the root causes and so on and so forth. Um, So I tend to say, you know, if situation is relatively non-severe, if it's not a huge amount of debt, you know you're going to be able to pay it back, but you might just need a break on the interest. That's when a credit counselor can make good sense. Okay. 
personal bankruptcy, on, on the other hand, yeah. uh, personal bankruptcy, it's a legislative proceeding. So what you do with a credit counselor, it's informal, it's negotiations between um, you know you and your creditors, and the creditors often pay some money back to the credit counselor as a, basically a fee for service because they appreciate the credit counselor helps them get paid back. When you file a personal bankruptcy, you're essentially using the law. You're sitting down with a trustee. The trustee is invoking a federal um, statute that's going to give you protection from all of your creditors. So you generally don't do a bankruptcy if you're intending to pay all of the debt back. You do a bankruptcy when the debt has reached a level that you know you're not going to be able to repay it. You need some protection from your creditors and the law again operates to give you that protection, the breathing room to restructure with the idea that you'll file for bankruptcy, be in bankruptcy for a period of time, do some some work to restructure, and then you exit bankruptcy and the debt gets left behind. You owe nobody anything. That's the whole idea. A licensed insolvency trustee, are you the only one who can negotiate a bankruptcy for me? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So if you hear, you know, bankruptcy attorneys, that's a U.S. thing. Um, you know, bankruptcy lawyers in Canada, they might help you with some advice before or after you filed. But the only person that can help you with filing a bankruptcy is a licensed insolvency trustee. You can't access the proceeding any other way. Okay. So what kind of law governs credit counseling programs? How about nothing? How about nothing? <laughs> How about nothing? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, and, and that's a bit of the void here um, because for me to be a trustee, it's a federal offense for me to call myself a trustee if I'm not or to purport that I can provide these services if I can't. There's no law that says what's a credit counselor, what's an accreditation. Um, there's n- really no rules that are out there essentially governing credit counselors. There's various provincial legislation that, you know, in the province of BC, um, a credit counselor can be considered a debt pooler, which essentially means, you know, they help you consolidate your debt. And the province of Ontario, the same behavior, a credit counselor is called a collection agent. So there really hasn't been good regulation of the industry, which again, for simple situations, there's not too much that's going to be going on there. You might be fine, but for anything complicated, definitely recommend that you sit down with a trustee uh, to figure out the options beyond a credit counseling option. Okay. So the debts under credit counseling and the debts under personal bankruptcy, are they different? Like who can handle what? I mean, we talked about the parameters, but... You know what I mean? Yeah, they're, they're quite different, and it comes okay. down to the whole, you know, informal versus formal. So a credit counselor can handle debts if the creditor says that they want the credit counselor to handle the debts. So typically, this is debts that you know that you would owe to the banks. All the big banks tend to work with credit counselors. Uh, if you got a payday loan, payday loan companies won't work with credit counselors. Okay. Because by a creditor agreeing to work with a credit counselor, they've got to agree to an interest freeze. And payday loans, the way they get repaid and make their money is on, you know, the 50, 60% of annual interest. Yeah. Um, so typically, a payday loan can't be dealt with in a credit counseling plan. What's even more important is anything to do with government debt. Government will never work with a credit counselor. They'll only work with someone that's using the law. So things like credit, sorry, not credit card, uh, student loans, um, income taxes, GST, different things like that. Only a licensed insolvency trustee can help with those debt. A credit counselor can't help at all with those types of things. Okay, so that's really two really big differences. Yeah, you know, even ICBC debt in the province of BC, we can help with that as a trustee. Credit counselor could not help you if there was an ICBC debt. Fair enough. Now, you mentioned that both options consolidate or combine your debts. How much of their debt would uh, a personal gen- uh, would a person generally have to pay back? Yeah, and this is really straightforward because, because there's no legislation governing a credit counselor, they're not able to reduce your debt a penny. 
So if you sit down with a credit counselor, you come in there, you owe $8,000, what you're going to be repaying is at least $8,000 because probably you'll pay a little bit more on fees. But the benefit, the value there is what you're not paying, which is the interest. If that's a debt to all the big banks, the big banks typically will agree to an interest freeze with a credit counselor. Again, they'll pay the credit counselor some money in exchange for that. But from a consumer point of view, you're probably better off if you're going to see a credit counselor and you're able to pay back 100 cents of the debt, but at least you're not paying the interest. That's the benefit there. Okay. Now, that compares to a bankruptcy where there's no set repayment on debt. And the the idea of a bankruptcy recovering 100% of the debt, that's the anomaly, the unicorn that almost never happens. That's someone filed for bankruptcy and then won the lottery. Okay, we've had that happen once in 30 years. Is that right? That's pretty amazing. Yeah, a little aside, they filed filed in the morning, one in the afternoon. Are you kidding? still folklore around our office, obviously. Wow, that's Uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, and what happens there just for the listeners is we go to court, we annul the bankruptcy, everyone gets paid out and everyone's happy there. Sure. But yeah typically doesn't happen. So if you file for bankruptcy... <laughs> Don't wish on that. Don't we, expect that to happen. That's right. We know you're not repaying 100% of the debt. Right. What you have to repay is driven 100% by your income. So the government determines if you're considered a low-income person, bankruptcy runs for nine months and you pay $200 a month for nine months for $1,800. That could be to clear millions of dollars of debt. It could be to clear $10,000 of debt. You pay based on your income, not based on the amount of the debt. And when you finish the bankruptcy, you exit knowing nobody anything. So you might be doing a credit counseling plan where you're paying off all the, you know, the credit card debt and all that, but you've still got a student loan, you've still got income tax debt, you've still got these payday loans. You can come out to that out of that credit counseling plan still owing money. Right. When you finish a bankruptcy with very, very few exceptions, you know, maybe spousal support, you owe nobody anything when you finish that bankruptcy. And you said too that it can take up to a maximum of five years to complete the credit counseling exactly. program. Exactly. Yeah. And you still haven't paid off everything. Right. So if, if you do a credit counseling plan, whatever debts they're able to include, the maximum term is up to five years. And again, you can imagine whatever that number is that you owe, if it's $10,000 or something like that, you know, dividing that over 60 payments, that still might be a payment that you can't afford. And you're going to be doing that for the next five years. Now, in the last sort of minute and a half, what kind of impact to to a person's credit history does each process? Mm-hmm. Well, a credit, a credit counseling plan is less severe because it's not a bankruptcy. Right. So, you know, similar to a consumer proposal, they actually reflect the same way. Uh, it's viewed as a negotiated payment arrangement on your debts. So if we were to line up all of a person's debts, everyone is going to report on an R scale. R1 is perfect credit. You never miss any payment. You pay as agreed on time. R9 is you file for bankruptcy, you skip the country, something like that has happened. Consumer proposal and credit counseling are both R7. So they're not close to R1, they're not that far off from R9, but they're not quite R9. So if you do a credit counseling plan or even a consumer proposal, you can answer no to that question, have you ever filed for bankruptcy? Because you haven't, you've done something different. If you file a bankruptcy, you have to say yes that you've went into bankruptcy. How quickly they clear is a consumer proposal will clear two to three years after your last payment. So if it's five years of payments, plus two or three years, you're at seven to eight years of total impact. If you were to do a bankruptcy, most bankruptcies finish in nine months, and a bankruptcy clears six years after your discharge, so pretty close on seven years. Right. So Elaine, they're not that different. Yeah, they're not, are they? Don't make the decision solely based on the credit rating. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So here's a question. 
Where can you find out more information about the options and get them explained properly? That's a really important piece. Yeah, there's only one individual in the whole system that's independent, unbiased officer of the court, which is a licensed insolvency trustee. So I'm bound by my code of ethics that if credit counseling is the right answer for you, I'll make you aware of that. If a proposal or a bankruptcy is a better option, we'll explore that as well. So sit down with an LIT for a free confidential consultation. Excellent. If you want to check out the Sands & Associates website, do. It's a great one. It's sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 and find that one of 16 offices near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So there's a lot of people that we can owe money to. Um, one of the scarier uh, creditors, I think, is the government. Absolutely. Whether it's provincial or federal, um, it's there's, there's not a lot of wiggle room with those folks. Mm-hmm. No, owing the government, I would say it's the last on the list of people that you would want to owe money to um, because it's very scary. First yeah. off, you often feel as though there's a power imbalance, which there absolutely is. Absolutely. You know, all the resources of the government against you, the individual. Um, and then often there's an element, um, I don't want to use the word ignorance in a bad sense, but just of not knowing. If you feel like you don't know all the parameters and the other side knows everything. So people can really get stressed very quickly if they owe the government money. And sometimes the debts can come out of the blue because you just didn't know your obligations. And we deal with them or we pay uh, either provincial or federal monies all the time if we're yeah. a homeowner if we're working, you know, anybody, you know, in a whole bunch of areas. So it's really important to pay attention. So Mm -hmm. what kind of debts do you see? Because you talk to a lot more people than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are the government debts that people are dealing with when they're coming to see you and, and needing some support? Yeah, so as I was preparing for the segment here today, as I started to set it out, it's like there's a lot of categories here. I've got upwards of six here, you know, and, and these are some broad categories. So, yes. you know, first off is personal income taxes. Sure. So very straightforward. Um, you know, if you worked a couple of jobs, didn't have enough taxes taken off, if you cashed in some RRSPs or, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why somebody might owe personal income taxes. But if you file your taxes and you owe the government money, payment is due by April 30th of the following year to avoid paying interest and penalties. It's a little bit more slack if you're self-employed, but we won't we'll keep it simple. So generally it's April 30th for an individual. And just because you don't file the tax return, that's not a strategy for the government not (laughs) to say that you owe money. Um, They'll eventually figure it out. They'll still assess you interest and penalties going back to the day when the return should have been filed. So we say it often on this show, being a non-filer with CRA is way worse than having a debt owing to CRA. Get the return in even if you know you owe money. Yeah, so important. Mm -hmm. So important. What about uh, GST? Because we talked about, we've talked about that in segments that businesses have to pay it. Yeah, so second GST debt from your business. So if you're over $30,000 of gross revenue, CRA generally in almost all industries requires you to charge, collect, and remit GST to them. Um, Even if you've started the business, you didn't know about GST, you didn't charge your customers anything, you're still going to be on the hook for that. Um, Whether it's an incorporated business, a proprietorship, or anything else, that's a debt that the person who runs the business, the director or the proprietor, would have to pay personally or would be assessed personally. 
Now, if you've got your own business again and you're, uh, you know, paying people to work for you, mm-hmm. whether it be a landscaping business, something small or, or something large, you can't mess around with that. That's right. So the third big category is payroll source deductions. So this is things like CPP, EI premiums, the employer and the employee portion. Um, income taxes, all of this stuff that as an employee gets deducted from your paycheck. As an employer, you have to make those deductions and pay the money to CRA. And the second half is the, the important part, just because you deduct the money, if that doesn't get remitted to CRA and gets used in the business operations, um, that's generally the worst debt you can owe to CRA because it's viewed as you using their trust money to fund your operations. Yeah, so not something that you want to do. You're collecting the money for them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, really important. Now, student loans, and it's kind of, student loans are kind of uh, sort of an enigma for me because there's so many moving parts, but what's sort of the essential piece of it? Yeah, the essential piece is that a student loan debt, now not for a private bank, bank line of credit, that's not the same, but a government student loan or provincial student loan, um, that's got the power of CRA behind it. So it's treated the same as an income tax debt. Um, you know, they can seize things from you. They can take the same collection activities we're going to talk about. A student loan debt is basically the same as owing the government for taxes. And it doesn't matter if you've, you've spent tens of thousands of dollars and you don't have a job at the end of this, it doesn't matter. You still owe the money. Still yeah, owe there's the money. various programs, and they're always getting better and better with you know interest relief or repayment assistance or things like that. But I have people in my offices every week with a lot of student loan debt, and they're really struggling. Okay, so uh, what's the next one? Yeah, so last couple ones here. So EI overpayments and penalties. So uh, if you were on EI and you got employed and you didn't necessarily let EI know right away and you got an extra payment or two, um, that's another debt to the government that they will come back and try to collect from you. Yes. Uh, and then the last one here of the six we chatted about is MSP premiums. So these are going to be eliminated next year, yay to the government for simplifying things for consumers and making employers pay. Um, but it doesn't deal with the past debt. So if you filed your taxes, sometimes if your income is low, there'd be some premium assistance. But otherwise, if your MSP premiums have been unpaid, the government's going to require you to pay those or try uh, to collect from you. Okay, even though the, the rules are, are changing for 2020. Yeah, they're changing going forward. But you know, this year, they're going to want their half payment. And for years previous, it's the full payment. Yeah. Okay, so we talk about how scary the government, if if you owe the government a lot of money and they know you owe the money, mm-hmm. uh, what are some of the res, uh, recourses that they have to collect on those debts? Yeah, so kind of from the, the you know least severe and going forward here, you know, first off, they're just going to charge you some interest and penalties. So like any other lender, uh, if you're, you know, delinquent on a payment, they're going to hit you with some interest charges and they're occasionally going to put some penalties then as well, you know, a late filing penalty. Um, CRA char- starts charging interest May 1st on any unpaid amounts owing for personal taxes. Um, And they'll start charging you interest on penalties after the filing due date as well. Um, For 2018, their penalties were 5% of the balance owing plus 1% of the balance owing for each month the return is late. So it's kind of significant. You know, it's not the credit card interest rate, but um, 5% just as a lump sum for being late is a kind of significant penalty. Yep. Uh, And I just want to throw in personal experience. Even if you're uh, finishing off someone's estate Mm -hmm. and that estate didn't properly pay for a caregiver, let's say, or or pay taxes connected to that, um, they actually actually don't care that you're dealing with the death of someone. Yeah. Um, they still want their money. Yeah, you might. She says laughingly. <laughs> black humor, right? You'll, you'll find some reps that are very compassionate and you'll find others that are ticking a box and going through a process and it doesn't matter if someone very close to you that you're dealing with. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, don't always expect compassion when you phone the government. Well, they might give you some compassion, but the rule is the rule yeah. and this is the date and you're late and this is, and this is the compounded interest as a result of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
what what was the last one about if you're habitually yeah. late filing? If you're a late filer, well, they, they make it worse. They say, oh. okay, if it's your first year, here's 5% penalty and 1% per month. Uh, if they charged you a late filing penalty from 2015 to 17, so anytime in the last three years, if you were late in 2018, the penalty is doubled. So it's 10% of the balance owing and 2% for each full month that it's late. So again, trying to make it more severe if you're a habitually late father. So the idea here is get the filing in, get it in on time, avoid the penalties. Even if you know you owe the you owe the money, you're going to be in a better state if you get the filing in on time. That's a really, I think that's an important point is, mm-hmm. is let them know that you know and, and talk, right. talk to them. So the interest and the penalties, that can be done by anybody, but there's a few things that only CRA can do. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about those. Yeah, and these, as I said, we often say things come like a bolt out of the blue. Well, this <laughs> is the, the type of thing when CRA yeah. puts a collection action, they often don't give you much notice ahead of time. So uh, one that they do to really get your attention is to freeze your bank account. So what that means is there's no movements in, no movements out. Whatever's in your account at the moment CRA contacts the bank is frozen. Um, and then sometimes they'll agree to release that account. You know, once you deal with them, you say, okay, I'll get the filing in next week. They'll allow you access to your bank account again. Um, other times they might seize all the funds that are in there. That might be your your rent money, you know, uh, money to, to afford for the kids. So it can be a very, very scary situation if suddenly your account is frozen. This is not the first thing they do. So most of the time when people say my account's been frozen... As we dig into it, I'm like, okay, well, you're three years behind in your taxes. You owed the money then. So I can see why they're trying to get your attention because you're just not playing the game. You're not filing the returns. But once we speak to the rep, they say, yeah, once they file the returns, we'll start to work with them on it. But this is an attention-getting type of thing. Wow. That's serious attention-getting. Yeah. What about my stuff? Are they going to take my stuff that I bought that I'm, or, or, you know, that I mm-hmm. have to make up the amount that I owe? They could. Wow. Yeah, they often don't come for personal property, but one big thing, as we know in the, in the Lower Mainland here and on Vancouver Island, is real estate. And CRA can register a charge against any real estate owned in a person's name. Um, they can do it again without any notice, without a court hearing. They just register a charge, um, and that just guarantees that CRA will get their money over time. What it also does is it forces the person to deal with them because typically in Canada, we do our mortgages on about a five-year cycle. And if you're trying to renew a mortgage, if CRA has a charge on that title, usually your lender is not going to agree to renew the mortgage unless you've dealt with CRA and that charge has been removed. So it's kind of like a lien, right? That a company exactly would a put lien. on you? Yep. Yeah. Same type of thing, but you know, with a lien, if a company's putting it on you, there's a court proceeding, you can argue against it, you can get it removed. If it's a CRA lien, there's nothing like that. It just kind of happens. Okay. And if I'm selling my property mm-hmm. uh, and that charge is on there, yeah. then the prospective buyer would also eventually, you know, like it just wouldn't look good. It wouldn't look good. Now, it might not come to light until, you know, the funds are being dispersed. Sure. And at that point, the deal is done. But what it means to you is you might have thought you're coming out of the property with, you know, X dollars. Well, yeah. before you see a dollar, CRA is going to take their money. Going to take that money. That's got to get paid out. Yep. Okay. How about my wages? How are they impacted or are they impacted? Well, they very well can be. And again, this is another thing that sends people running through the doors of a licensed (laughs) insolvency trustee is the idea of a wage garnishment. Uh, If you're an employee, uh, relatively straightforward. CRA can go straight to your employer, your HR department, and usually they take about 30% of your wages before it's payable to you. And that can be an incredible shock to the system. Most people are just struggling, you know, paycheck to paycheck, and then suddenly getting 70% of what they should be getting. Um, That's a big problem. Uh, Now, even if you're self-employed, you might say, well, you know what, I I don't work for anybody, I just deal with my clients. Uh, It's actually even worse there because what CRA can do is what's called a requirement to pay. And that means CRA might say, okay, you work with five different clients. I've sent each of those five clients direction that the next dollar they're supposed to pay to you has to go directly to CRA. 
So it's a requirement to pay CRA instead of the person doing the work. Wow. And that essentially chokes off your revenue down to zero. And again, it's all the idea of CRA wants to get your attention, wants to make sure you're following the returns and get you to deal with the debt. Um, but I'm dealing with somebody right now who unfortunately didn't deal with CRA for a lot of years. They're taking 85%. Um, of her gross income on a monthly wow. basis. So she's literally wow. working for 15 cents on the dollar and she's been doing it for about a year now. Wow. So I'm thrilled we're going to be able to help her as soon as a trustee is involved. I can put a stop to just about all of these things, which is what we're going to do, um, but it requires the reaching out and seeking help. Got it. So besides that, reaching out and getting help, how else can you mitigate uh, these kinds of debts? Do they? Is there any solutions be- be- besides paying them off entirely and, and them coming after you? Well, generally, they're going to want all their money. And the person that you're dealing with at CRA, they're not going to be able to make a deal with you to compromise on the amount. You know, sometimes they can deal, you know, reducing interest and penalties. But if you can't pay the full amount of CRA debt, it's generally only a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy that can help you renegotiate that debt. Now, that being said, that's your last resort. And that's if nothing else works. So the first thing you'd want to do is, you know, get all the returns filed up to date, open lines of communication with CRA, and, you know, see, can we work something out informally? Most of the time, CRA will give you about a six-month window to come to payment terms with them. But if it's an insurmountable debt, I think your plan one is still do all the returns up to date, get back in, you know, the compliance books, but to deal with the debt, you've really got to see a licensed insolvency trustee. Yeah, because I just want to repeat that piece again, because you're the only, a, legal, um, a licensed insolvency trustee is the only real legal solution that can lead to forgiveness of the government debt. Exactly. So we're not talking about challenging the debt in court. You know, you no. get a tax lawyer to do that. But if you know this is real debt, you just can't pay. A trustee is the only person that can really help you. And they'll help you figure that out at mm-hmm. Sands & Associates. And listen, if you're still not convinced, go to the website, sands-trustee.com or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Get that first free consultation as well to find one of their 16 offices near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So lots of people talk about credit scores when it comes to sort of as a barometer for your Mm -hmm. financial health. Um, and the, this segment's going to be all about figuring out or finding out why that might not be the best measure, one, and two, that it kind of doesn't matter, which I thought a bit shocking. I know not everybody yeah. knows that. I know that you've said before uh, you should try to figure out how to maintain, um, instead of trying to maintain that perfect credit score, figure out how to get out of debt. Exactly. That's the number one thing. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the credit score. Yeah. So my take on credit scores, and I've been doing personal insolvency work for quite some time, I think this is the greatest magic trick of misdirection played by the financial industry against consumers in that they're directing us to be so focused on this indicator, which actually has very little to do with whether we're doing well or not doing well financially, but has everything to do with, are we making the bank money every month? Are we paying our interest costs every month? And that's, I remember when we first talked about that, I was shocked mm-hmm. that that's what it was based on because yeah. you just because it's it it's a misnomer it doesn't indicate that that's what that's about well and it's everywhere now too and you're seeing you know all, all this more you know free credit score monitoring or check your score and all this stuff it's coming out with these you know different high interest debt type of providers but they provide free credit score monitoring so it's an added value and, and to me it's not but right uh, so repeat again why why it's not a why it's not a good indicator well that's what we're going to talk about in some good detail here but you know in a nutshell the person who has the best 
stressed financial situation of a ton of assets and is paying zero amounts of interest every month, paying nothing on their debts, probably has a terrible credit score. The clients that come in to see me quite often, 70% of them or more, have perfect credit. They might have $80,000 in debt, credit card debt, payday loans, no assets to speak of to clear that debt, but because they make all their minimum payments every month, they're never late on anything, the bank gets all their interest payments, their credit score could look great from that metric. It's determined by the bank, and that's the Mm -hmm. thing to remember as we go through this. So, uh, do you want to do basic stuff about the credit score? Okay, good. (laughs) Let's do that. It's a number. Yeah. So, you know, people talk about their credit rating, their credit score. Your credit score is a number and it ranges from a low of about 300 to a high of about 900. So, you know, generally anything over about 800 is quite good. And that's what most people would shoot for. But the essential thing to know here is anytime you get a free credit score online, it's essentially fictional. You know, no one knows the exact algorithm that your bank that you're going to be applying for is going to be using because they're all different. So when you sit down with Royal Bank or with BMO or with CIBC, your credit score could be completely different from each lender because the algorithms algorithms that they use are slightly different in how they calculate the the actual metric. So that's weird that there Mm -hmm. isn't sort of an industry standard. No, so it's indicative. So, you know, you know if you get your free credit score and it's 800, it's not going to come back at 300 at a different bank, but it could be quite a bit different from institution to institution. So, you know, chasing a certain number based on, you know, a third party metric doesn't make a whole lot of sense because your bank might have a completely different number, might weight things a little bit different. Okay. So do you want to move on to the next piece then? Why, uh, Why is a credit score and credit report such a poor measure of your financial standing? It's of showing you how well or how you're, how well or not very well, how you're, I'm not, I'm not saying that properly. I get what you're saying. You're either doing well or you're not doing well. Right. So let's talk about a couple scenarios where your credit score might be high, but you're actually not doing too well. Right. So a couple ways your credit score might be high, and this is the one that I see all the time, is you're only making minimum payments. So you got a bunch of this debt that's out there, but you know you might be paying two hundred dollars a month on a debt that's thirty thousand dollars because all it is is the minimum payments that's clearing interest. And that could be your credit card. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But you're never late on that. You never miss payments. Sure. Um, you know when they change the rates a little bit, you just absorb it. Um, but it doesn't indicate anything that you'll ever pay this debt off. So all that happens every month is that creditor reports on your credit report that yep the debt was paid as agreed on time, paid as agreed on time, and that becomes a very positive thing on your credit report even though it's a debt that might be growing every month. Um, you know, it might be you're on the 80-year plan to pay it off with just your minimum payments. Right. But from your credit score, credit report point of view, it's viewed as a positive. But from your overall financial health, it's actually quite negative having a bunch of credit card debt that you're only paying minimums on. That's not a recipe for you ever getting out of debt. That, which is which is what you don't think, right? That's like right. Like you just don't think that. So can you reduce... Uh, is it is it's reducing it's not reducing your credit rating but it's reducing that vulnerability to uh, not looking after your debt properly is there ways to do that what do you mean I'm sorry oh well I'm just thinking um, how do you how do you fix how do you fix not uh, getting out of that that cycle yeah and that's what you have now I understand what okay. you have to do is you've Sorry. got to no you've got to essentially separate yourself from saying okay the credit score is the only indicator I'm paying my minimums credit score looks good so therefore I must be doing the right thing you've got to kind of break that model and say you know what even though the credit score looks great I know logically when I'm paying $200 minimum payment and $190 of it is going to interest, I'm probably not doing the right thing for me long term financially. So you need to almost accept that for you to deal with a debt situation, your credit score has to be the first casualty. You're going to take a knock on the credit score. 
but this is a temporary thing. People can go zero credit score after a bankruptcy to getting a mortgage in about two years. So I think if people understand your credit score is something that can change over time, it doesn't need to be perfect every moment of your life, um, they'll generally have more of an ability to say, okay, I'm going to accept a short-term setback, deal with the debt, and then rebuild the credit again in the future. Got it. So uh, you've got a list here of being able to reduce, uh, being able to make, make changes here. So making a large payment or closing an account. Yeah. So what this was, Elaine, is I'm trying to show how it's counterintuitive. So we said, you know, here's some things you can do that your credit score is going to be high, but they're the wrong thing. You know, one is making all your minimum payments. Credit score is going to be high, but you may never get out of debt. Yes. You know, another might be having just tons of debt, you know, six different accounts. Um, none of them are in delinquency, but in the total aggregate, that's a lot of credit that you probably won't pay off. That doesn't hurt your credit score. Got a couple of things that do hurt your credit score are actually the right thing for you to be doing, but they knock your credit score. So, Which is making that big payment. Yeah. So if you make a large payment on account or close an account, you lose all of the history there, especially if you close the account. I see, so okay. where I'm saying there is you see people go and they want to apply for a mortgage. So they go through and they clear up their credit. They get rid of a few accounts they haven't used for a while. Smart thing to do, simplify your life from a credit score, credit rating point of view. The wrong thing to do because you might have just lost 10 years of history of everything paid on account on time. So closing accounts is generally not a good idea. It will impact your credit score negatively because you'll lose the history. Okay, so would you consolidate? Would you take that money that you're owing in one spot and put it on another? And that would be a bigger balance at the end of the month then too. Well, and, and that's it. If we're gaming the credit score, um, you might do that. But who knows, you shouldn't try to gain the credit score. You should be doing what's right. right for you financially, which would be, yeah, if you can consolidate into a lower interest rate, then yeah, you'd want to do that and move it over to another account. But if that results in that account being, you know, more than a 50% credit balance utilization, meaning that if you've got a $10,000 limit and you consolidating puts it above roughly 5,000, you doing the right thing might result in your credit score dropping because now you're using more of the available credit. Okay. So it's a bunch of counterintuitive Got stuff, it. right? You making the right decision often results in the credit score reflecting poorly. Now, how important is it to have a, a good credit history? That's an important question, Elaine, because for most of the time in our lives, it's not important at all. Interesting. It, it makes no difference. I remember being 18 years old and I walked into a stereo shop and the guy said, you know, you should finance this over three years so you can build credit history. I thought, well, that's really smart. I'm happy he's trying to help me out. From 18 to 21, would I have ever gotten a mortgage? No. The only debt I needed was a student loan, which I didn't need any credit history for. But I could tell he was planting the seed for me as a young consumer saying, okay, I better be conscious of this credit rating type of thing. Interesting. You know, I sit down with folks and sometimes people are very proud to say, you know, I've got a great credit rating. And I say, okay, sometimes a little flippantly, okay, well, how's that working out for you? Right? If you've got this great credit rating, if it really means a lot, just go to the bank. I'm sure if you've got great credit, they'll loan you all the money you need to get out of debt. You're not going to need me. Well, what happens is they go to the bank and the bank says, yeah, you might have 900 credit, but I'm uh, sorry, we're not comfortable to loan you any money because you don't have any assets or anything like that. So right. the credit score that you've been focused on, when it actually comes down to it, it may not do much for you. Right. When you actually need it is when you're sitting down to get a mortgage, to do a car financing, different things like that. And as I've said, two years of disciplined behavior, you can often build a credit score to what you would need a good minimum level. You don't need to be focused on it your whole life. See, and I think the key here is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow the horn 
on here for a second, Mm -hmm. is to sit down with somebody like yourself, a licensed insolvency trustee, to help me figure that stuff out because it is counterintuitive. And if it's a credit score, a good one is something I've always worked towards and then all of a sudden you're telling me how that that's not necessarily important, I'm at a bit of a loss Mm -hmm. because I'm one of those people that got told it is important to have a good credit story, you know, history, exactly. If you're debt-free, having great credit is awesome, but if you've got debt, it's the wrong way to focus. Go to the website, sands-trustee.com. It's a great website, just a ton of good information, or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. Get a free consultation to find it as well as you can find an office near you, 16 offices here in British Columbia. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.